welcome Kenneth and Alex to FinTalks at Chat with Finance Malta. Thank you for being here and for accepting our invite. Um, thanks, Ludolf. Thanks, Finance Malta, for the invitation. It's always our pleasure to participate in these um, discussions and, uh, and sessions. So thanks a lot for your invitation. You're welcome. Thank you. So when I went through the enforcement notices that you posted on your website, I noticed a common issue across all the reports. An issue relating to the supporting documentation vis-a-vis -vis the source of wealth and source of funds. And these are the two subjects that we are going to talk about during this chat. So to kickstart our discussion on these two subjects, I kindly ask you to define source of wealth and source of funds as per the implementing guidelines. Um, good morning and uh, thank you once again, Rudolf, for the invitation. Um, as you rightly queried, I think it's important to start off with a definition of what constitutes source of wealth um, and source of funds and perhaps also define um, uh, the, the legal basis and legal obligation from which these two um, sets of information requirements um, actually emanate. So when we speak about source of wealth, we're talking about gathering information to understand where the wealth of a particular client that would eventually be used um, uh, throughout a particular business relationship is derived from. So in understanding the source of wealth, one would be expected, for example, to understand what sort of employment that that particular client has or what sort of business activities um, uh, he actually carried out, which explains the wealth um, that, he, that he possesses um, was generated from. On the other hand, when we speak about source of funds, we're talking about the source of a specific, a particular transaction that um, would would be carried out um, throughout a particular business relationship. Now, let's let's also explain and discuss these two particular sets of information and what legal obligations they emanate from. So, when we speak about source of wealth. Um, we are speaking about a set of information that is required to be obtained as part of the legal obligation entrenched under Regulation 71C. That is the obligation to um, assess and obtain information on the purpose and intended nature of a business relationship and the understanding of the business and risk profile of the client. So is it correct, Alex, sorry to butt in, that source of wealth is normally associated with the onboarding of the client? Exactly, yeah. exactly. So um, the, the obligation to understand the business relationship is an obligation that should be carried out prior to establishing a business relationship, a business relationship. so it's a set of information that is required when one is first engaging with the client prior to start servicing that client. So. And what's important to highlight is that the obligation to obtain source of wealth information is one of um, a set of information that one requires to obtain to understand the relationship and the risk profile of the client. And it's important to point out that there are other considerations, other um, sort of scrutiny that has to be carried out. For example, if you're setting up a company, um, what is the purpose of that company? What sort of activity that company will be carrying, will be carrying out? Um, what is the anticipated um, type of business, type of transactions that that company will be carrying out? What sort of trading partners? What sort of markets is going to target? So this is 
all part of a set of information that enables you to understand the relationship and the source of wealth information fits in exactly, with this exactly. um, category of information. The intention is not to go through the um, onboarding procedures, but we're going to focus on one aspect, one, one thing that we need to carry out exactly. uh, during the onboarding, which is the source of wealth. And perhaps what's important to, to point out is that even though throughout these sessions we'll be focusing specifically on source of wealth, one should not ignore um, that there are other obligations course, um, that should be implemented as part of understanding one's relationship. On the other hand, the source of funds um, obligation um, takes place at the point that the relationship has been established and one is expected to carry out ongoing monitoring of the transactions and activities that are, that, um, are taking place. And as we shall um, explain throughout this, um, uh, the, this, this talk, source of funds is not an obligation that has to be implemented in respect of each and every transaction, yep. but um, it should um, take place um, as part of the review of transactions and once transactions um, are considered to be of pattern of the norm uh, in relation to that particular client then one is expected then to delve deeper scrutinize that particular transaction understand the rationale and also seek to understand the source for that particular transaction and that is what we refer to as source, source of, of funds. funds so basically what you can say is that source of wealth is related to pre onboarding right whereas source of funds is the post incorporation because once you s the client starts entering into transactions, then you need obviously to understand those transactions. And that's fall within the umbrella of the source of funds. But when you are onboarding a client or you're taking over a client, um, then obviously you need to understand the source of wealth. Right? Mm -hmm. Good. So um, I have grouped my questions into, into four categories. Um, the first one is going to be a general, general category where we're going to discuss about the general um, questions that the subject persons, our members, have and which affect both the source of wealth and the source of funds. Then we delve into a bit more detail on the source of funds, then we go on the source of wealth, and then we'll end up um, our chat with reliance on third parties, the, the reliance agreement. So if we start from the general aspect, yeah, and we talk a bit about the subjectivity of the risk rating scores, because at the end of the day, the information that we require from our clients depends on the risk rating of the client. So I think that is the basis of the information that we'll be asking. Um, and to come up to determine the risk rating scores is quite subjective. Each member, each subject person can have a different way to arrive at the scores. So when the FIU carries out a visit to a subject person, right? I'm assuming they're going to go through the risk rating scores. So considering the subjectivity in determining these scores, I mean, what does the FIU look into? Because obviously it's going to be difficult to ensure that the risk rating score of that particular individual is going to be the same as what the FIU expects. So can you elaborate a bit on this, please? So when we speak about the implementation of AML um, obligations, I think it's important to, to highlight that with recent changes in the law, um, and the enactment of the fourth and uh, more recently the fifth money laundering directive we've moved on from a system which we refer to as rules-based to one which is um, risk-based where subject persons are expected to understand what risks they are facing 
and to ensure that the customer due diligence that they implement is commensurate, is effective to target that risk, meaning that in low-risk um, scenarios, one would expect um, uh, a more uh, lenient approach. Yeah. While when one has um, high-risk customers, one has to be more um, uh, robust, one has to go into further details. Um, and this obviously um, requires certain discretion to be implemented by, by the subject persons. Um, and this is actually um, reflected in the law itself when it um, explains what um, risk-based supervision entails. So in actual fact, the, the FIU in terms of um, regular, uh, Article 26 of the Money Laundering Act is expected when carrying out supervision to take into consideration the discretion that a subject person has in implementing his anti-money laundering obligations according to risk. So, but sorry um, to, to butt in on it, but for example, if we're looking at the geographical risk, right, and we're rating the countries between 1 to 10, 10 being the highest risk, yeah? I mean, are we, the members, expect the members, um, when the FIU goes and, and, and carries out a compliance visit, does the FIU goes into the actual rating and say, all right, for example, Greece, why is rated five and not six? The UK, why is rated two and not three? I mean, do you go in that level of detail? So let me explain what happens when we carry out a supervisor examination yes, yes. and try to understand um, the, the uh, effectiveness of, of the risk assessment. So it is not an exercise of comparing ratings. So the FIU does not have its established rating and compares that, uh, that, that rating with the subject person's rating. It is an exercise of assessing how appropriate and um, effective risk assessment is. So we look at the methodology adopted. The basis, how they arrived at that rating. Exactly. We try to determine whether that um, risk assessment is exhaustive and appropriate. Exhaustive in the sense, does it look at all the risk factors that a subject person is exposed to? So does it evaluate the customer risk, the type of products? Yes. The geographical risk, the interface risk. So I am, am I onboarding customers and meeting them face to face? Or am I onboarding customers via intermediaries or um, uh, remotely? Right. So we, we examine whether it is exhaustive. Does, does it assess all the risks that one is facing? We also examine whether, whether it is appropriate. So you've referred to jurisdictional risks. We uh, try to determine the jurisdictional risk on the basis of what sources it is determined. Does it um, uh, define uh, a high-risk jurisdiction on the basis of one source? For example, does it only look at um, FATF lists? FATF lists um, uh, identify jurisdictions that have failures in their anti-money laundering system, but that looks only at the robustness of anti-money laundering regimes. It doesn't reflect, for example, a jurisdiction's exposure to terrorism risk because it might have certain terrorist organizations operating within. It does not reflect, for example, if a jurisdiction is exposed to um, higher risks of corruption. <clears throat> so what we expect is that the subject person in understanding the jurisdictional risk has looked at um, a multitude of sources and not, does not simply rely on one, on, on just on one, one source. source. 
a common finding that we identify when we um, assess uh, risk assessment is that sometimes we uh, find um, cases where subject persons risk rate um, a particular a particular um, uh, relationship for example but there is no understanding as to how that risk rating was derived we I mean, it's not an exercise of assessing whether there is a risk rating, but whether the subject person demonstrates an understanding of risk. So what we would suggest to subject persons is that they um, are able to demonstrate a methodology which can be a system, which can be a document, and they are able to explain and justify to the FIU how they derived that risk rating. And I'm assuming this is not just a one-off exercise, this is an exercise that you have to carry out throughout the relationship as well, because risk okay. changes, indexes, index okay. change, so this is something that, it's a life exercise, yes, a document. Just to add something, um, Rudolf, uh, in terms of the examinations that we carry out, um, uh, prior to conducting our on-site or off-site um, examination, we request a number a list of documentation to subject persons. So um, when we notif when we send the notification letter, we request a number of, of, of documents to be presented to the FIU. And uh, prior to the examination, our officers go into, into, into detail by reviewing all the documentation, such as business risk assessment, etc. And uh, then when we go on site, we just check with the, with the subject person how they arrive to certain, to certain conclusions. As Alex highlighted, one of, one of the main issues that we encounter sometimes is the auditor and the rationale behind such such decisions. Because practically either the rationale is there but it's not it's not documented, or otherwise we don't we don't um, find no audit rate and the rationale when we go and ask the subject person how you arrive to these conclusions, he is not able um, to explain. So it's either the, the risk assessment was carried out by a third party, so he does not have any clue on how uh, how the ratings or how the assessment was carried out. So I think I think um, one of the one of the basic um, uh, uh, one of the most important thing is that the, the subject person is conversant with um, the the actions that he actually is undertaking. So. Uh, and we cannot go on site and you find an MLRO who is not conversant with, with how the risk was calculated, for example, because that is one of the main of the main uh, pitfalls that we, we encounter, especially the part of the audit rate. Yeah. You know, so the work, sometimes the work is actually done, but then there's no audit rate, so you're then, you know, just remembering what you did three years ago, two years ago, which is, you know, and... Uh, yeah. No, Perhaps good. if you allow me, Rudolf, something ah. else that I wanted to highlight is the fact that in order to promote this shift from a rules-based system to a risk-based system, what we've been doing since the launch of the um, uh, risk evaluation questionnaires in 2019 is that we have been requiring subject persons to submit their business risk assessment alongside the RQ. Right. Um, and one of the exercises that we are currently carrying out is that through the assessment of these business risk assessments, mm -hmm. we are now in a position after having launched um, two, two uh, annual RQs to um, identify certain common um, failures, but also certain good practices. And uh, we uh, intend now to issue a paper um, uh, explaining this analysis and highlighting okay, these very good. And just um, to give good, you some, some, uh, some information in advance, 
for example, the common the common pitfalls that that we are encountering, for example, in the business risk assessment. Okay, the situation improved because I think we need to speak also about about the positive aspect. And that's important. Um, uh, and I think, for example, if we compare the business risk assessment non-submission from 2019 to 2020. Um, it, it, the, the number of non-submitters decreased drastically, um, uh, but we, we are identifying now issues in terms of business risk assessment. For example, some of the issues that we, but we will we will provide further details in our in our um, uh, guidance as Alex highlighted. But you know, generic mitigating measures, for example. So there's no specificity. Um, BRA not re- reflective of the actual control measures adopted, for example. Um, we had instances where there's lack of understanding of the BRA methodology, for example, you know. Yeah. So we're going to issue this publication and we're going to go into further into, into detail, in the granular details, um, uh, to provide guidance on how to improve the it's business important, assessment. It's important because it will help definitely the, the members, our members, to better prepare yeah. the BRAs. So no, that's that's great process. Um, yeah, <coughs> type of documentation, right? So um, one common question that we encounter is what type of documentation is acceptable as supporting documentation? So for example, if we're um, looking at the source of wealth of, of a client, right? And he says that um, um, his old property and he got three million for that property. And that's an explanation for the source of wealth. So what type of documentation? So if we're going for a contract of sale, does it have to be certified? Is it a scanned copy? Can we rely on uh, a declaration from a notary or from a lawyer? Can we de- rely on a declaration from the client? What, what are your thoughts on this piece? I think when it comes to determine the um, type of documentation, I think the underlying principle is the level of comfort that that document um, provides to understand where um, a particular um, wealth is derived from. So in the case you've mentioned in relation to to a sale of property, I would say that the most appropriate document would be um, the contract of sale. However, what we advise is not to simply tick the box by obtaining a document and that's it. I think more importantly is to scrutinize that document. So to consider whether that document is appropriate enough. Does it include the expected details for that particular deal? Um, uh, <coughs> but sometimes, for example, Alex, the contract of sale will be in another language, not English, for example, right? So, and uh, it might be very costly to translate the entire document. So in that case, um, it might be better to obtain, for example, a declaration from a notary or from a lawyer in English. I mean, because sometimes we have to deal with practicality as well. At the end of the day, as FIU, what will you be comfortable? So if I tell you we have a declaration, for example, from a notary, is it something that is acceptable to, to the FIU? I think it would depend on the risk of the particular situation. So if we're talking about a significant transaction, um, I would say it would be important to make sure that one is understanding the contents of the document. So if it's transmitted in a language that the subject person does not understand, yeah. that document has no value at all. Of course. So obviously one needs to either translate the document so um, he can make sense out of it and understand it co- its contents and reliability. <clears throat> and also another measure could be that of obtaining um, an independent 
um, assessment of that particular contract, for example, through um, uh, a declaration by a notary, by a lawyer, for example, I don't know, referring to registration of that property to asserting that indeed um, that there was that particular property acquired by, by that particular client. When it comes to um, declarations by, by professionals, what we would what we would also advise is to um, also understand whether that particular professional is indeed um, a an accredited professional, whether he is resident or established in a jurisdiction that is reputable, that has a regulatory framework to, to regulate um, such, uh, such profession, whether the profession um, uh, has an interest. In, in, uh, in, that, in, that, in that deal itself or whether he is acting as an intermediary for the client meaning that he has an interest in that deal going through so there are various factors that one has to consider um, to determine whether that a particular measure obtaining for example a declaration is appropriate or not in the circumstances oh, Fair enough um, and if we refer a bit in terms of when we look at documentation for example contract of, of sale does it have to be certified? Is a scanned okay? Because sometimes, I mean, uh, you receive scanned copies, especially nowadays due to COVID, etc. I mean, uh, is it okay? Or do you expect to have certified copies? So, um, in the implementing procedures, the only circumstance, circumstance where we require mandatorily that a document be obtained in original and retained as a, as a hard copy is when um, uh, the document is a certification by a professional um, as to the veracity of a document. Otherwise, there is no mandatory requirement that a document has to be obtained um, uh, in... Uh, in, in in hard as a certified copy as a, as, as a hard as a hard copy document in original so so basically what we're saying is that if we're going to go for a contract contract of sale a copy a scanned copy is fine so at the end of the day we need to understand uh, the source of wealth and it's not going to make a difference whether it's certified or original or a copy um, and how far should we go back? Because sometimes we might have a client, right? And say, I sold a property 15 years ago, but I don't have a contract of sale um, because I live in a jurisdiction and I only need to keep copies for 10 years, right? And the sale was acquired, was, was done, was affected 15 years ago. And there is no contract of sale. And this is sometimes a situation that, that we encounter. I mean, how can we deal with that particular situation? So, in reply to this question, I think it's important, first of all, to highlight that um, obtaining information on the source of wealth is not an exercise to account for the entire wealth of a particular client. So, for example, in a situation where a shareholder is funding um, a particular company through um, uh, I don't know, a quarter of a million uh, capital that he has derived from um, an employment that he carried out for the past 10 years. There is no need to obtain documentation for each and every year to account for the total amount of capital. But it would be reasonable enough for a subject person to obtain um, documentation, tax declaration, financial statement for a particular year to understand that that wealth has been reasonably generated throughout throughout that period. Um, in reply to to uh, to your question as to how far back 
um, one should go. I think one should understand the risk of that particular transaction. So if we're talking about a sale that occurred 15 years ago and no documentation has been retained, I think you have to consider the other elements of, 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 the, of the case um, in the sense that are the proceeds of that um, sale had been deposited in a bank account in a reputable jurisdiction or are we talking about proceeds that had been um, settled in trust in a jurisdiction um, that, for example, uh, has certain issues with transparency of ownership? So why would the, 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 the client want to transfer the proceeds in, in, in that particular trust? So I think the reply as to whether you should rely on a declaration or not depends on the particular situation. In the, in the last scenario I mentioned, I mean, my, my opinion and our opinion would be not to go ahead with the transaction is if the client can cannot come up with some sort of documentation or uh, a declaration from an independent professional to attest yeah. to, to the source of wealth. Mm -hmm. In the previous circumstances, circumstances that I mentioned where funds would have been deposited in, in a, in a uh, bank in a reputable jurisdiction, then the risk is, a, is uh, much lower in that case. And for example, one could obtain uh, some statement for the bank attesting yeah. to the good standing of the client. Yeah. So I think one has to evaluate the circumstances of the particular um, case at hand to, exactly. to determine how to proceed. And I think it's very, yes. it's very important to keep note of the rationale why mm -hmm. on, yeah. on, on which checks you are relying. So if you're not obtaining um, uh, documentation but you're relying on, on uh, since a, a deposit as Alex highlighted was made in a deputy jurisdiction, you should take note of your of, of, of your decision. Of how so if we come two years later, three yeah. years later and pick up a file and you know there, there's full audit trail of how you arrive to do, to that conclusion. Yeah. And okay we we can query um, and we can discuss because these these are um, <coughs> issues that we we usually do during the on-site examinations. However, our main concern would be if you are not able to explain. Of course. So if there's an explanation, and uh, there's a full audit of how you arrive to that conclusion, for us, it's already you know um, uh, at least the subject person has has made a decision. Yes. It's this based, you know, exactly. so you, you, took a, you, you, you took your actions accordingly. They went through the thought process. Right. And I think as well, uh, before you evaluate, you need to understand. So understanding is obviously quite a crucial aspect and you need to link it to the risk rating score as well of that individual. Yeah. So, Rudolf, if I may take you back to a question you posed earlier in relation to um, certifications and whether um, uh, it is an appropriate measure to <coughs> to carry out and whether one should, um, uh, instead of obtaining certification, rely on scanned, on scanned documents, I think what's important to highlight is that a certification helps to alleviate concerns in relation to the authenticity of a document. Of course. Because, for example, a notary lawyer is um, certifying that he saw the original document and, and he's attesting that it is a true copy of the original. But you, when a subject person is faced with concerns as to the veracity of that document, the contents of that document, 
I fear that obtaining a certification would not alleviate those concerns. Yeah. So yeah. in that particular circumstance, it's not a matter of whether you should obtain an original or a scanned copy, but perhaps one should scrutinize further, ask further, ask further documentation, or ask further questions from the customer rather than simply ask the customer to provide a certified copy which would not address the concerns that a subject person would have. Fair enough. No, good. No, thank you. Thank you for that. Um, so let's Ad- focus. Ad- no? Additionally, on yeah. this point. Yeah, it's okay. No. Um, uh, I think we should also be aware. We should request documentation, not procure documentation ourselves. So we had instances whereby subject persons, you know, suggested or recommended or provided the documentation themselves. So uh, I think. We, we are gatekeepers, all of us, including the subject persons themselves. Of course. And uh, we need to keep an eye on that. So we're, we're not just there to bypass the system. We're part of the system. Of course. As Alex is highlighting. Yeah, no, it's, it's very, very important. Um, so let's move on and, and talk a bit about the source of wealth, uh, specifically on source of wealth. Um, so when a subject person is onboarding a new client, or entities they administer, um, we say that we're going to have a new UBO, right? And um, uh, there's a, an, an understanding out there that if you have a new UBO, then you need to carry out the source of wealth. But this might not always be the case, right? It doesn't mean that if you have a new UBO, you need to carry out the source of wealth. Can you please expand a bit on this? Yeah, so uh, as I as I um, mentioned in my introductory comments in relation to uh, source of wealth, I pointed out that um, the requirement to obtain source of wealth information is one of a series of information that one has to obtain to understand the relationship and to understand the risk and business profile of the customer. And as we explain in the implementing procedures, these sets of information such as understanding um, in this case what what that you've mentioned what type of activity the company is carrying out what sort of anticipated um, transactions it, it, it uh, one expects what trading partners it will have what markets it will target and also the source of wealth are not sets of information that have to be obtained in each and every relationship so one has to understand um, in that particular circumstance what is relevant to obtain. So if we're talking about, for example, a company um, that is set up to provide IT consultancy services, which do not require um, a significant amount of capital to start off with, in that particular circumstance, I wouldn't say that obtaining source of wealth information in that circumstance is relevant, as opposed to a situation whereby a company is being set off with a significant amount of capital being contributed at the outset, or a company that is being set up to carry out a trading activity that requires certain capital contribution, like for example, dealing in textiles, that you require um, certain capital to be able to acquire the material um, uh, to, to, to pursue the trading activity. So, so, so if we have a, a situation Alex, where, mm-hmm. for example, and it's quite common, you have individuals who are going to provide consultancy services, they're going to provide a service. So all they need is a laptop, right? Um, and they set up a company with minimum share capital of one, 1,200. 
I mean, in that case, I mean, the source of wealth is not that important. I think it's going to be more important, the source of funds, I think which we will discuss later. I mean, is my understanding correct? Yeah. Yes, correct. Um, in, in that particular situation, given that it's, it, it is a company that is being set up to provide IT consultancy services and no particular capital apart from basic um, IT, IT hardware and software is required to start off the company. Um, acquiring source of wealth on all the shareholders of that particular company would not um, would not be relevant in the circumstances. Exactly. As opposed to a company, although starting off with a minimum share capital, but carrying out a trading activity that requires certain capital um, uh, input, even though no, even though not at the start of the relationship. Okay. So in that particular circumstance, as opposed to the first one, source of wealth information would be um, appropriate required, and relevant. Yes, yes, of course. And and if we have, for example, um, a UBO. Um, he passed away and his children inherited um, his shares. Again, there is no capital injection because normally I associate source of wealth with capital injection, right? So if you have three heirs who inherited the shares from their father, I mean, do you need to carry out source of wealth? Because at the end of the day, they just inherited them. No, in the circumstances, in the circumstances, what is what is what is required is for one to actually understand and document that those shares have been acquired um, uh, through uh, through through inheritance. Yeah. But I wouldn't say that source of wealth information in that circumstance would be relevant, given that there would be no um, capital contribution forthcoming from those new shareholders. So at that point in time, it is not um, relevant to consider source of wealth information. That would become relevant if um, those shareholders exactly inject funds at a later stage throughout um, uh, the lifetime of the The company and the the servicing of that company. So if we have another scenario, scenario, for example, you have a company and you have um, six or seven shareholders, right? And there is no shareholder who has more than 25% shareholding. So the implementing guideline says that if there is no UBO, then the senior managing officers are considered to be UBOs. So again, you're looking at the directors. I mean, the directors are going to be considered, will be considered as UBO. I mean, I don't think it will be appropriate to carry out source of wealth on the directors because at the end of the day, they haven't injected any funds. Um, so that will be my first question. The second question is, and what about those six shareholders who each have invested, for example, um, 15%? They have, they have not invested more than 25%. Do, they, do you need to carry out um, source of wealth on those um, I think when it comes to, to shareholders, as far as source of wealth is concerned, yes, yes. I'm not Always going into the merit of identifying and verifying no, no, the UBOs, no, no, no. but when it comes to source of wealth, I think the most important question that one has to reply to and understand is who is contributing to, to that capital or who will make good for the capital of the company throughout its lifetime. And I think then the subject person needs to understand where that capital is derived from. So if you're faced with a situation where you have five shareholders and I don't know, two shareholders are going to contribute with their expertise while the other three are going to contribute with capital, irrespective of the (coughs) percentage of voting rights or percentage of profit rights um, that these five shareholders have, one would need to understand whether where the capital of those three shareholders is deriving from. 
it would not be um, effective and appropriate to focus on the other two that are con going to contribute with their expertise and ask for source of wealth information in their respect. Yeah. As in this in the circumstance, it would not be um, that relevant to, yeah. to, to consider. So basically what you're saying is that the source of wealth is linked to the injection of funds. So in that case, if you have two directors and there are six shareholders and only two will contribute funds, then obviously you're going to focus on those two who are contributing the funds to the company, right? If we have another situation that we can have is, um, if you have two shareholders, A and B, shareholder A has 95% of the financial rights, but has 5% of the voting rights. Shareholder B has 5% of the uh, financial rights and 95% of the voting rights. So what we're saying is one has the majority of the financial rights, the other has the majority of the voting rights. Um, how do you look into that? I mean, both, I'm assuming, are going to be considered as UBOs. So in terms of, again, source of, of weight, how do you deal with that? Oh, I mean, when it comes to determining the UBOs, uh, if, if looking at the definition of what a UBO is, one has to reflect both on control and ownership. So, um, according to the law, any person who possesses 25% or more of both the voting rights um, as well as shareholding would be um, considered a, as a beneficial owner. However, when it comes to determining um, on which shareholder source of wealth information would be relevant, I think then one has to take other considerations uh, into account, sure. apart from voting rights and shareholding okay. rights. Right. That would be who is going to contribute to the capital, yeah. either at the outset or oh. throughout the lifetime yeah. of the company, and focus on those or that shareholder in terms of source of wealth information. Um, in relation to trust and foundations, um, so basically, um, set laws, protectors, um, trustee and the beneficiaries are all considered to be UBOs, but in most cases the asset is being set in the trust by the set law. So am I correct to say that the source of wealth should primarily be focused on the set law since he is the one or she is the one that is settling the, the asset in the trust? So as you explained in the context of a trust, uh, it is a relationship whereby a person the set law is settling in trust um, an asset and for the benefit of the beneficiary and the role of the trustee and the protector is to ensure that that trust is administered according to uh, the conditions of the of the of the deed um, in that particular um, circumstances when it comes to trusts as you as you pointed out it's important to focus on who is um, providing um, the capital, the asset that is settled in the trust. So focusing on the settler. The settler, yeah. And obviously any additional settlements that are carried out throughout the, the, the lifetime of the trust then have to be scrutinized yes. um, yes. as part of ongoing monitoring obligations. Fantastic. No. Thanks for that. So so that's basically we discussed briefly a bit, a bit the source of wealth and we provided some guidance on common questions that we encounter. If you go on to the source of funds, um, normally, source of fund is linked to post-incorporation um, and linked to a transaction. When we're looking at the source of funds, we need to understand a bit the value and the nature of the transaction. But we also need to align it to the client profile. Is it something that we are expecting? And considering the activities of the client, I mean, can you explain briefly uh, a bit um, on, on, this, on these lines, please? So, 
before doing that, I think it's important to explain that for a subject person to be able to carry out effective ongoing monitoring, he has to understand what is normal and reasonable as an activity to be carried out within that relationship. And as I said in my introduction, the obligation to um, scrutinize particular transactions and carry out source of source of funds um, requirements in respect of specific transaction does is not required in respect to each and every transaction, but in respect of those transactions that are of norm of pattern yeah. of yeah. norm of pattern um, in terms of the value because it's um, yeah. of pattern in terms of the significance of that of that. A particular transaction, um, the nature of the transaction of a particular company is dealing with um, two particular entities, and all of a sudden um, funds are incoming from a third entity yeah. that is off pattern in terms of the nature, so and also yeah. so in terms of a ge- geographical connections. If a company is known to be targeting a specific market, and all of a sudden you uh, identify incoming funds from a different jurisdiction, one has to understand those particular transactions as they are of norm of better. Yeah. Yeah. So I think what is important is understanding. First understand and then see what what questions you need to ask and what information you need you need to obtain. Now that's I think is, is very important. Um, when we have um, transfer of assets for example by DUBO to the multi entity, right? And those assets can be cash or in kind. Can we rely on the source of wealth that we have carried out um, during the onboarding, or we have to carry out specific um, uh, or obtain specific information at that point in time? So I think in the circumstances, in the circumstance, one has to consider whether the source of wealth information obtained at the outset justifies, explains those transactions. So if a particular shareholder has um, explained at the outset that he's going to contribute um, 1 million euro in capital um, in yearly tranches, and the subject person would have obtained um, information, documentation to understand the source of wealth um, for that 1 million euros, there is no requirement at each end of retranche that is carried out to repeat um, checks and carry out source of funds for that particular incoming transaction. As in that particular circumstance, the subject person would have already carried out um, the necessary checks to understand where the monies are coming from. What I would suggest is that in circumstances where, for example, the monies are coming from from a different jurisdiction than that uh, linked to the residence of the of the shareholder, yeah. then in that circumstances, one is expected to query why um, a particular incoming transaction um, is coming from a different from bank than than the previous transactions in view of jurisdictional risk, yes. jurisdictional connections. But otherwise, if the source of wealth suffices yes. to um, explain the transactions, there is no need to specifically focus on transactions carried out throughout the relationship. That's that's great, thank you. And if there is a loan by third party, right? So you have a company, there are the shareholders, and they're going to obtain a loan from a third party. Let's assume that that party is not a bank, because if it's a bank, it's easy, there will be certain documentation that you can refer to. But if it's another individual, right? What are the considerations or supporting documentation that one should get? Um, I think when it comes to um, third-party loans, I think it's important to to, uh, state that these should be considered as risky sort of transactions. And apart from understanding where 
the monies are derived from, I think it is also important for one to understand why is there that um, third party loan. Is there a particular connection um, between the third party making the um, uh, the capital transfer through a loan yeah. um, to the company? Is he going to invest? Is he going to retain certain rights um, and or derive certain profits? So there has to be um, a reasonable justification as yes. to why the transfer is being made by a third party who is um, not not connected with the company. And what's the relationship between this party and the shareholders or this party and the company? In fact, in our publications um, and in our sanctions uh, publication, for example, there were instances where we made reference to, to loans and we always highlighted, for example, that such as the purpose of the loan was not provided, it was a vague yes, um, justification yes. was, was provided, there was no reference to the duration of the loan when to, had to, yes, yes. to be repaid um, back. Um, uh, interest rates, for example, normally there's interest uh, of being charged, so there, there, there was no interest reference in, in, in the loan agreement. So I think it shouldn't be a piece of paper, three liner, whereby I'm giving a loan to Alex of and five million, yes, uh, six million. I think w- there should be a little bit, as, as Alex was explaining, in terms of justifications and uh, and also the mechanism how the loan is going to work out. And the purpose. So and I'm the assuming purpose. I think that the purpose has to be included as a clause as well in the loan agreement. Yes. So you'll be looking at the loan agreement and you need to make sure that the loan agreement truly reflects uh, the terms and conditions agreed between the third party and the directors of the company. Mm-hmm. It's not just a template of a three quarters of a page mm-hmm. just to show that there is something. Sometimes even three line. Yeah. Three line, yeah. So, <laughs> I, think, I think it's very important, Rudolf, because I think you're one of um, there are other subject persons, but even this session is based on our publications. And I think we should we should guide subject persons to read the publications. We don't publish the the, the publication of sanctions just to name mention the the individual or the company, etc. But it's a learning process, okay. so we learn from uh, you know from the issues that are cropping up. Okay. Okay. No, I That's try to, to read them to be honest, all of them, because when you go through them, you also understand as well what you expect. There's always a situation where you can learn as well yes. um, from what is being stated um, in these in these reports. Uh, if you allow me, Rudolf, uh, earlier, on, earlier on I passed the comment that um, uh, loan transaction in the context of companies should be um, uh, considered as risky and one should be wary of such transactions, even given the, the fact that we've been identifying the use of loans to justify certain transactions as a common typology in uh, strategic analysis that we've been conducted. And I uh, invite um, uh, listeners to uh, make reference to the fact sheets that we've been issuing in relation to yeah. the strategic analysis that one can find on our website. Good, good. No, definitely. Thank you for that. Um, the, last, the last question is in relation to reliance on, on third parties. So we're referring here to section four of the implementing procedures. Potentially, again, there might be certain misconceptions surrounding the use of the reliance agreements, as well as the extent of reliance that can be put on such agreements. Can you go into a bit um, in this in slightly more detail and also distinguish between the ongoing monitoring and the onboarding? So I think, first of all, it's important to, to state that placing reliance as a means of doing customer due diligence is not a lesser means or a less effective um, 
way of doing customer due diligence and I think in certain, in certain circumstances, for example, where a particular client is being serviced by um, two subject persons in relation to um, uh, a same deal, I think it is an, a practical approach as to how customer due diligence should be, should be implemented rather than having two subject persons involved in the same deal, approaching the customer, asking for the same set of information for the same set of documentation. Um, what is important to, to keep in mind is that, first of all, when someone, when a subject person is relying on another subject person, one has to consider whether reliance can be placed. And the law um, lists specific um, criteria that have to be taken into consideration. So whether that other entity is a subject person or a third party subject to ML obligation, subject to robust um, uh, supervision. Um, it is also important to bear in mind that the responsibility of adhering to the law always vests with the subject person, irrespective of whether he's placing reliance or, or otherwise. Or not. Exactly. So the, the subject person placing reliance on another subject person still remains responsible for adhering to his anti-money laundering obligation and the placing of reliance does not shift or exempt him from responsibility. So if you're providing a service to a client, then you are the subject person and you are responsible. Exactly. But the first con consideration that you need to take into account is, can I rely on this person? I think that is the first question. If, if that question is yes, then obviously you're going to ask the information. But then you have to be aware that at the end of the day, whatever you obtain, you need to make sure that you are responsible Correct. And, and, and if you allow me, <clears throat> I think it's important to explain that reliance is the process of relying, of placing reliance on customer due diligence documentation yeah. obtained, meaning that information on the customer still needs to be um, obtained by the subject person placing reliance, and that is important um, for the subject person placing reliance to be able to understand um, the type of client he's dealing with and understand the risks of the particular relationship he is entering into, as it does not mean that the um, risk posed to the first subject person would be similar to the risk posed to the second subject person, because it can vary according to the service the product being offered. Um, when it comes to reliance, it's also important to highlight that ongoing monitoring can never be um, subjected to reliance. So reliance um, can take place in respect to documentation and information to understand the identity of the customer. For the onboarding part. For the onboarding part. For the ongoing, exactly. then you For cannot the rely on the test part. Correct. It is basically your responsibility. Correct. Right? Correct. And what the implementing procedures also require is their, um, uh, the requirement to have a written agreement between the two parties. Uh, and this, here I'm going to stop. So you're referring to an agreement, not a letter. So if it's an agreement, do you expect it to be signed by both parties yes. or just one party? Yes, it has no to be an, under, an undertaking of both parties. So both it parties. has to have the consent and agreement of both parties. So the party being relied upon and the subject person placing reliance. And this is important because there are certain aspects that should feature in this agreement, such as the um, obligation for the subject person being relied upon to provide documentation if they are required. So obviously for these undertakings to be binding, it necessitates um, uh, the having of an agreement. Um, uh, also in, in, 
in respect of, of um, the placing of reliance, as I said at, at, at the outset, is it's, it's important for the subject person to obtain um, information at the outset of the relationship and not simply to place reliance and ignore um, uh, the context of the relationship, the information of the client. That is important to be obtained at the outset of the relationship, irrespective of whether one is placing reliance or not. We had, we had cases whereby there was no agreement subject person was not aware of what's taking place in terms of checks so when we went on site okay yeah. you told us listen yeah. i'm relying completely on on elix for example so uh, i i think the ownership still relies with the subject person so we you need to be conversant and you need to make sure that the checks are being carried out because we had other instances that someone was relying on on a third on another subject person conducting the checks etc but uh, no, 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 the checks were not carried out in line with what with with, with the obligations, for example. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I think even the the agreement should stipulate what kind of checks and uh, um, uh, safeguards should be should be carried out. Good. No, thank you very much. I mean, to conclude, I would like Kenneth and Alex, if you can please deliver a short message to a promoter out there who's looking into setting up a business in Malta and to the subject person, the license person here in Malta, who is assisting that promoter to set up the business in Malta. Um, uh, no, from our end, um, Rudolf, as, as FIU, um, we, are, we are here, um, uh, first of all, we are here to, to safeguard, to safeguard the, 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 the business. So we, we're not against um, business in Malta. Um, I think we, we're here to, to ensure that we, we attract um, uh, we attract business, legitimate business, and uh, I think we're, we're doing our utmost to, to safeguard um, uh, the systems, the, 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 the funds, etc. And I think this is something um, which is not um, the sole uh, the, so it, it's not only about the FIU, but I think it's it's all the system that we, needs to work together. Yes. Um, uh, I think we should learn from our mistakes. Um, uh, nobody is perfect. No jurisdiction is perfect. Actually, of course. Um, uh, I think we 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 improved a lot in the last in the last few years. Um, there was a change in in mentality and in in, in in terms of. Um, uh, also, because sometimes compliance is, is seen as a cost. Yeah. Um, uh, but I think there's a change in culture and mentality, um, and this is this is clearly visible not only from the authorities because the authorities now invested heavily in in terms of uh, HR systems, you know, and uh, etc. But also in terms of subject persons because we need to highlight that subject persons. There are subject persons who are really investing and we, we can vouch for that in terms of systems. They are investing millions in terms of systems, in terms of um, HR. HR. Yeah. Um, so it's it's not only about the authorities that have increased their their um, uh, their capabilities, but also subject persons. And I think we should help those subject of persons. Course. As a FIU, we're not there to, to um, uh, you know, to create a barrier, not to make business. We're there to help, to attract business, and we should ensure that there are controls. It's a risk environment, um, so there's, it's not a risk-free environment, but we need to make sure that there's, there are the necessary controls to ensure that uh, 
you know, the, the majority of the cases are picked up, okay. reported, etc. And, I and think uh, that's our, our ultimate thing. Yeah, I think it's important as well. I completely concur with, with your views. We have to be selective on which clients to, to accept and to onboard. And I think that is very important. And it's the responsibility of, of the subject persons. I mean, thank you, Kenneth. Thank you, Alex, for thank your you. time. It has been very interesting. And I'm sure that our members appreciate um, your insight on the subject matters. Thank you once again. Thank you. Thank you.